WAGP.net. Good morning, and welcome to The Light, 88.7 FM Bible Live, a live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina, and for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogy, you may call 525-1859, or on your Altel cellular phone, star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll-free, 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. That's Paul's admonition to his son in the faith, Timothy, and really by extension and application to all of us. God calls us to study his word, to learn it. And so for the next hour, this is the Bible line. And if you have a specific question or issue that you're dealing with in your personal study of God's word or looking for biblical application to some struggle, some challenge uh, that you may be facing, if we can help, uh, we will do our best by the grace of God. All you need to do is pick up the phone. Again, the local number is 525-1859. For those outside of our state or Internet listeners, we have a toll-free number for you to use, and that number is 877-WAGP980. People also email us here directly into the studio, and you can do that. And the email address is TBL for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. When you call, you can remain anonymous, or you can go on the air live, or simply dictate your question however you'd like to give it to us. Rick, as always, it's great to be here for the Bible Line. It is indeed, Pastor, and uh, we've gotten a number of calls that have already, or actually emails, I should say, that have already come in, so let's get to some of them now. All right. Uh, Susie from Savannah would like to know if there is any scripture regarding whether or not it is okay. Well, we've got a live caller. We always give live callers preference, so let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible Line. Good morning, Dr. Rogge. Hey, I'm uh, interested in uh, actually tracking uh, the various denominations and how they developed, uh, uh, namely two, uh, Episcopal and uh, Methodist, uh, which I believe came from uh, uh, the Anglican Church, and I would like to know how that developed. Plus, if you wouldn't mind throwing in any Puritan influence that might have uh, resulted in that as well. All right, great. Well, the Church of England, as it's originally called here in the United States, it's called the Episcopal Church. Episcopos is a a word that's used to describe a bishop or an elder in the local assembly. In either case, uh, Henry VIII uh, had a little problem. Uh, He wanted a divorce, and the Roman Catholic Church said, no, we're not going to grant it to you. And so having struggled with that, he said, well, if they won't grant it, I'll just create my own church and I'll get what I want. And that's exactly what he did. Uh, Listen, uh, his Archbishop of Canterbury at the time, Thomas Cramner, was actually a very great man, good, solid brother in Christ, a Protestant reformer of sorts. And uh, but it had kind of shaky beginnings, the Episcopal Church. Uh, But nonetheless, uh, today. Uh, There are some that are solid. Most, unfortunately, today are not. Uh, If you go to England, 
Uh, I've been to Westminster Cathedral on a Sunday morning. Uh, when I went there, the last time I was there, and you see the great services of the state that are held there, whether it was Princess Diana's wedding or her funeral or whatever it might be, on those occasions, the place is packed. Uh, they had kind of a big procession on Sunday morning where all the young boys who sing in the choir and all the various uh, authorities and priests marched down. But I want to tell you, there was more in the procession than there was in the whole congregation. There couldn't have been 50 of us in that huge cathedral that seats thousands. Uh, that's what happens when a church or a denomination loses the gospel. And so, uh, as you know, here in America, there's been a huge drift from their roots. Actually, if you read the 39 Articles of Faith, which is a summary of Episcopalian doctrine, the Church of England doctrine, um, it's, it's a pretty sound document. I don't agree with every jot and tittle in it, but overall, any evangelical, I think, could ascribe to the basics that are outlined and unfolded there. The problem is, is that you can have a great document on paper and something entirely different in practice. And that's where the Episcopal Church is today. And so, as you know, in these last few years, they have now officially sanctioned the ordination of homosexuals uh, to be bishops in their church. That's how far afield and how far adrift they are from the Word of God. There is a conservative movement within the Episcopal Church and so some of the more Christ-centered Bible-believing churches have totally left. Uh, they've uh, associated themselves with another communion, as it's called, some with uh, some African Episcopalians, some with uh, another branch here in the United States, uh, because they understand the biblical admonition that there is a time to, to separate. And there comes a point where you really have... Uh, lost your influence in a denomination, and the best thing to do, I think, then is to leave. In fact, I, I think by leaving, sometimes we actually help and make a clearer statement. But lay that aside, we live in South Carolina, and in South Carolina, we're blessed in that there tend to be more Episcopal churches that are conservative uh, than in other parts of the United States. But like with any denomination today, you have to look at each church individually. You might walk into uh, an Episcopal church. In fact, we have one here in town, the St. Helena Parish. Uh, they, they like to call themselves that and leave the word Episcopal out. Actually, it's a very uh, Christ-centered uh, local assembly. Uh, Jeff Miller, who's the pastor there, is a Bible-believing Christian. You might walk into another one in the state. I met a Episcopal pastor not too long ago, and yet all the smells and bells and little things that sometimes accompany their service, but he didn't have the plan of salvation. And that was unfortunate. So it's the same could be true with the Baptist church today. You know, you can walk into one church that, you know, is very shaky and very often, uh, sometimes a denominational name can reveal a lot. The PCUSA Presbyterian church, United States of America, just two weeks ago, finally made their official stance in favor of homosexuality. Uh, it's a liberal denomination. That's not to say that every single PCA, PCUSA church is liberal and apostate, but most of them are. Uh, most of the more conservative brothers who believe the word of God left. Uh, there is a connection, of course, between Methodism and the Episcopal Church or the Church of England. John Wesley himself uh, was uh, sanctioned and sent by the Church of England to come 
to America to preach the gospel. Of course, he was in Savannah, Georgia. He was down in Brunswick, Georgia, a number of places in that area, uh, seeking to reach the Indians. And on one particular trip back, uh, he was in a terrible storm where he thought the boat was going to sink. And yet he saw some Moravian Christians at the time, a real solid denomination today. For the most part, they've lost the gospel. Uh, but nonetheless, these Moravian Christians were Christ-centered, had a calm assurance that if the boat went down, because they couldn't do anything at that point, humanly speaking. Uh, you know, you can only do so much in a storm. You can pull the sails down and try to bail out the water, but it was either God was going to spare him or he wasn't. And they realized that, and yet Wesley did not have that calm assurance that these men had, and they described it as a personal relationship with Christ, which caused them to begin to question where he stood spiritually in his walk with God. He went back to uh, London and attended a meeting in a place called Aldersgate's Chapel. And on that particular evening when he attended, the introduction to Martin Luther's commentary in the book of Romans was being read. And in that introduction, Luther describes his own um, journey to faith. And as um, John Wesley heard uh, Luther's explanation of the gospel, he said, my heart was strangely warmed, and he describes his own conversion that night. So here he was, a pastor. Here he was, a, a missionary to Indians to save the heathen when he himself was lost. Uh, Wesley came back to America, passionate to preach the gospel. It said he rode 80,000 miles, uh, excuse me, yeah, 80,000 miles on horseback up and down the eastern seaboard of the United States. And in the process, God used them to bring many, many people to Christ. Uh, he desired to help these new Christians, so he was very methodical in terms of following up these Christians. He wanted a plan to get them grounded in their faith. We do very something, something very similar at Community Bible Church. We have a course called the Discovery Class that meets every Sunday. It never ends. Uh, because people, by God's grace, are finding the Lord every single week. And so we immediately in introduce them to the discovery class. They can start any week they want. Um, Wesley was very methodical as well. And so because he was so methodical, people nicknamed them Methodists. And so the title came. But theologically, they would be very akin to the Church of England in terms of their doctrine and, and so forth. So I hope that helps uh, get you started and get you thinking. Let's go to our next question. All right. Getting back to that question from Savannah, this person would like to know if there's any scripture regarding whether or not it is okay for women to serve in the church, i.e. communion, collections, etc. They know it's uh, not right to lead or teach men, but she needs scripture reference if you have any regarding serving. Uh, and do you think it's okay or not biblically? Well, it's a great question, and it really comes down to an issue, can women serve in the office of deacon? And there have been people who have argued that they can, and some for different reasons and some in different ways. Uh, there are some very conservative Bible teachers who would argue that the office of deacon is open both to men and women, that the office of elder is open only to men, but the office of deacon is open to men and women alike. And to justify this, they'll turn to a passage like Romans chapter 16, where he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, 
who is a servant of the church, which which is at Sancria, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever matters she may need help of you, for she herself has been a helper of many and of myself as well. And so Phoebe is described here specifically as a servant of the church. And if you have the New American Standard with um, footnotes, there's a little footnote there that tells you um, there's another possible way in which to interpret it, and it says deaconess. I commend you to our sister Phoebe, who is a deaconess of the church. Now, understand, and this is a challenge that we have in English, but we don't necessarily have in other languages. In the Greek New Testament, the term servant can be used in a formal sense or an informal sense. And there are many words like that in the Bible, and context determines their meaning. And so, for instance, uh, take the word apostle, apostolos. It just means a messenger. And so there are a number of people in the New Testament, like Epaphroditus, for instance, who's called an apostolos, uh, but he's not an apostle because to be an apostle to serve in that office as a sent one, which is what the word apostolos means, you had to have been hand-selected by Christ. You had to have seen the resurrected Lord. And if indeed you had been hand-selected by Christ and seen the resurrected Lord, then Second Corinthians twelve twelve teaches that there'll be certain signs, wonders, and miracles that will accompany that sending by Christ. Uh, Paul says, look, I had the signs of an apostle I perform those signs among you. If everyone could do those, then his argument would be meaningless, but not everyone can. And there were certain miracles and wonders that accompanied the ministry of an apostle according to 2 Corinthians 12, 12. So there's a technical sense that refers to the office, and then there's an informal sense of the word that just describes someone who is sent, or sometimes even the gift of apostleship to be distinguished from the office. The same is true with the word deacon. Uh, Jesus said, he that would be great among you, let him be the deacon of all. Now, in most languages, there's one word. If we're reading the Russian text or the Greek text or many other languages, there's one word. In English, to distinguish the office from the role that we are all called to play, and that's what's in mind there, he that would be great among you must be the servant most translations render it, or the deacon of all. And so in many languages, when people read the word, they have to, in their mind, determine, well, what's he speaking of here? Is he speaking of someone in the office or just someone who's a servant? I think he's speaking in Romans 16 of someone who is simply a servant of the Lord. And so the New American Standard renders it that way, but they do give you the option Uh, in the margin. Uh, And again, many languages don't give you that option, but English has two words to distinguish it. Uh, And the reason I do believe that it's used in an informal sense there of Phoebe is because the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. Uh, Where does the office of elder begin? Well, it's not a New Testament office because the office of elder is found in the Old Testament. Uh, but so where does the office of deacon begin? Well, that's not found in the Old Testament. 
And I think there was a genesis for it, and it's in Acts 6. Now, at this time, the disciples were increasing in number, and a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews. So you had Greek Jews who were raised outside of Palestine, and you had Jewish Jews, so to speak, Hebraistic Jews who were raised in Israel itself. And they're all there. Uh, because the church is born and no one wants to leave and they want to learn from the apostles before they go back to their home countries. And so this dispute arose because some people were who were from out of town, their needs were being overlooked. And so the apostles said, it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables, but select from among you, brethren, seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. And it's interesting when he says, select from among you, brethren, seven men. In Greek, there's the word anthropos, uh, that is the generic word for man. When we speak of man as sinful, we're not saying, well, men are sinful, but women are not. We're saying mankind or all humanity or people are sinful. This is not the generic use of the word. It's not anthropoi, plural, um, men or mankind. It's men, air in deference to women. Select seven men, men who are of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom. So I think this is the genesis of the office. This is, this is the only text in all the New Testament where you have any hint of a formal office being started. And so they select seven men, and the names of those men are indeed listed. Later on, when the Apostle Paul gives um, the requirements for the office in 1 Timothy chapter 3, he prefaces uh, this, remember the chapter and verse divisions are artificial. Uh, they're added almost a millennium after the Bible's completed. But he prefaces the requirements for the office of elder or deacon with some overall general instructions in terms of the role that men and women play in the local assembly. And he's just said, I do not allow a woman in 1 Timothy 2.12 to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. And he gives two reasons. He goes back to the order of creation, and then he goes back to the fall, that because the woman stepped out of her God-given role, she was open to deception. And then he says, um, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work, and he gives qualifications that can relate only to a man. In verse 8, he says, deacons likewise must be men of dignity, and he describes the qualifications Included in that are things like uh, the husband of one wife. Um, In verse 11, there's a little interruption in the qualifications, or at least it might appear that way to some, where he says women likewise must be dignified, and some take that as a reference to women deacons. I don't think so. I think the King James and the NIV 84 were correct in that they interpret the word woman. The word woman, gunikos, can mean wife in the Bible. When he talks about a wife, say, in Ephesians 5, who is to be loved by her husband as Christ loves the church. He's not talking about loving every woman in that way, but that's the way you love your wife in that sacrificial way. It's the word gunikos. Could mean a woman or could mean a wife. Context determines. Again, like a lot of words, their meaning comes from context. And the King James in NIV is actually interpretive there. And so they say the wives of deacons must likewise be. Uh, and I think that's what 
truly is in view. So all that being said, if someone could truly serve in the office of deacon without exercising some authority, then they might indeed uh, be able to serve as a deaconess. I don't think they can. I think it's impossible. In fact, in most churches, the office of deacon is actually uh, a very much of a leadership decision-making role. There are some churches where they don't have a single elder form of government, but a plurality of elders, where the deacons indeed are true servants, and they function in that capacity. And with that being said, um, you know, they're not, even even in those contexts, they're involved, though, in some decision. It, it's impossible not to exercise some authority, but they're doing it under the supervision of the elders. So uh, in a lot of churches, traditionally, Part of the deacon role in terms of serving was taking the offering, administrating the uh, elements uh, at the Lord's Supper. And I think really in most churches and in the average evangelical mindset, that's still true. I don't think you could dogmatically say that it's prohibitive for a woman to pass the offering plate. But if in the church traditionally and historically, and it's always been true, you can go all the way back to the church fathers where there's reference to this, deacons assumed that as part of their responsibility. And since that's often associated with it, if you want to underscore what God's word teaches in reference to the roles of men and women, and that the office of deacon should be for men only, then I think it would be unwise to have women in the local assembly taking the offering or administrating the Lord's Supper. So there's not a verse that will tell you that, which is what you've asked me for, but there are some general principles and guidelines that the Word of God gives in reference to men and women. We are equal, but we have different roles, and there are some things only men can do in the local assembly, and there are some things, as Titus 2 indicates, that only women can do in the local assembly. It's not a matter of better. It's a matter of role and calling and God underscoring. And what's happened in our day, unfortunately, is a lot of men have abdicated their responsibility to lead in the local church. And the local church has become fem- feminized, and we're, we're raising feminized guys, which is really sad. And it's not the way God designed it. It's certainly not his earnest desire. Great, great question. I um, wish I could spend some more time on it. Let's go to the next one. All right. We have a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hello, Dr. Brogy. Yes. Thank you for calling. Thank you. I just want to thank God for placing his knowledge on you. I learned a lot from you, and I appreciate it. And I was wondering if you can expound a little bit. Uh, my wife and I were having a study last night. as We study every night. And I'm, we were in Jeremiah, and uh, I think it's the 37th chapter where the Rechabites come in. I believe I'm pronouncing it right? Um, but they came in, and, and uh, we were studying that and found out that uh, I believe that they were nomads, that they were wanderers, and God had spoke through Jeremiah to have them come and drink the wine, and they declined to because they were following their forefather, Jonadad, and um, I believe that they had some uh, filial uh, obedience, and I was wondering how we can learn from that. You know, I know that they were following man, and not God, and how God used that in that time in Jeremiah, and how we can relate it to today. So I was wondering if you'd be kind enough to kind of expand on that uh, situation in that text there for a moment. In terms of uh, what it means or how it applies? 
Yes, sir. And um, if it'd be okay, I'd like to hang up so I can listen. Sure, that that that'd be fine. Um, understand everything in Scripture that is recorded is not necessarily mandated or given as an example for us to follow. Um, Judas hung himself to give an extreme example. Uh, I shouldn't take that and say, well, that's what I need to do. Uh, I shouldn't take a promise that is specifically mentioned to a particular individual and say, well, that promise uh, is my promise. In three days, God says you're going to cross the Jordan River on dry ground. And I don't say, well, in three days, God's going to, you know, give me financial deliverance. Um, no, I, I think sometimes we misunderstand and misapply particular passages of Scripture. And so the example that's given by these men is not necessarily an example that we are to follow. Just because something is necessarily recorded in Scripture, it's not a mandate or a dictate for us necessarily to embrace. And there are certainly things that were done and have been done by people that are um, cultural or uh, traditional that are not necessarily wrong. Sometimes, though, for instance, if I can give, bring it into the New Testament, uh, the Apostle Paul in Romans 14, after he dealt with principles of conscience um, in the 14th chapter, moves in the 15th chapter to those who are weak in conscience and tells them to hopefully be strengthened. Uh, those who are strong in conscience are to be sensitive. And so there's an example where you've got someone who grew up with a tradition like uh, eating uh, vegetables only, or for some people, eating uh, what was considered only the clean foods of the Old Testament and not the unclean foods. When Paul reminds them, like Jesus does in Mark 7, look, what defiles a man is not what goes into his mouth and then is eliminated, but really what comes out of his heart. And he declares all meats clean, and Paul gives an argument for that. So he reminds those that grew up with a tradition, which is really what you're speaking of here in Jeremiah with the example you cite, that those who grew up with a tradition, it's not necessarily that the tradition is wrong, but sometimes we need to step back and ask, um, is the tradition mandated uh, as a law? You know, there are some churches where they will become so inflexible, uh, you know, in terms of I, I suggested to, to one pastor that when he asked me to come to his church and do a little evaluation of the service, I said, well, you might want to move your uh, offertory to the end. I said, take the offering at the end of the service. He said, they'll never let me do that. I said, why not? He said, because they've always done it at the beginning of the service. And I explained to him some advantages to maybe doing it at the end of the service since he was reaching a lot of young families for Christ. By the time they got into the service, uh, when he had already done his welcome, they were dropping their kids off at the nursery. He was missing the opportunity to garner some potential contacts of people that he could share the gospel with. But if he had it at the end of the service, it might give him that opportunity. So sometimes we embrace the tradition, and there's necessarily nothing wrong with the tradition, like taking the offertory at the beginning of the service. But sometimes we need to step back and say, but is this something I need to be driven by and governed by. And if not, then what is the overarching principle of the Word of God, and, and how am I going to apply it to my life? 
anyway, I, I again, I wasn't clear all that he wanted. I, I'm assuming he's trying to figure out how do I apply their example and and so I'm giving you some general principles and guidelines. Let's go to the next question. All right, very good. Our, our next caller dictated their question. By the way, when you call, uh, our phone number is 525-1859, toll-free, 877-WAGP980. And when you do call, you are always um, greeted by our, our receptionist, and she can give you the option of going live or dictating your question. We've had some people that call, and they say, am I on the air? Right, and, uh, right. So we want to assure you that we don't immediately put you on the air. But anyway, this caller did dictate theirs, and they'd like you to address Romans 6.14 and Romans 7.4-6 through 6 in terms of grace and the law. Um, Joseph Prince says we're not accountable for our sins anymore. God doesn't see them because they've all been dealt with by grace at the cross. Others say that at the judgment seat, we will have to account for our sins. What do you think, Pastor Brogy? Well, um, let me first read the two passages, and I'm not sure what connection you're making in your your mind in terms of uh, the accountability of Christians, but it says, for sin shall not be master over you, for you're not under law. But under grace, Romans six fourteen, um, and then he says in Romans seven two and three, uh, or actually you uh, quote four through six here. Therefore, my brethren, after he had just given the example of a woman being bound by law as long as her husband is alive, but if he dies, she's free from the law and thus able to remarry because only death can can break the marriage bond so then if while her husband is living she's joined to another man she shall be called an adulteress but if her husband dies she's free from the law so she's not an adulteress so she's joined or married to another man therefore my brethren you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ that you might be joined to another to him who was raised from the dead that we might bear fruit to God. So here is, let let me, let me just talk for just a moment. Sometimes when you see the word law in scripture, sometimes it's referring to the moral law of God. Sometimes it's referring to the ceremonial law of God. And it is true that the ceremonial law of God that pictured the coming work of Christ and not just that, sometimes it pictures the peculiarity that God's people were to have that is manifested in a different way under the new covenant. For instance, a Jew, as we just discussed a couple of minutes ago, was on a certain diet plan that God gave. It's outlined in Leviticus and Deuteronomy in terms of the clean and unclean meats. Under the new covenant, um, all meats are declared clean. Um, Under the old covenant, there was a certain dress, a certain hairstyle Uh, that was to be followed. Under the New Covenant, there's still some general principles, but they don't fall into the same categories that were found under the Old Covenant. And then there are those things that, uh, like sacrifices, that we no longer do because of the once and for all sacrifice. So some of the ceremonial law pictured the work of Christ. Some of the things that set the Jewish people apart under the Old Covenant, they are now set apart in a different way under the New Covenant through the inner working of God the Holy Spirit. And so it's not our, uh, the length of the side, the hair on the side of our head that distinguishes us, but the Spirit of God who produces the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, and so forth. Um, but in terms of the moral law of God, um, that is binding. It, but Paul's argument, understand, is that it's not through your obedience to the law that makes you righteous before God. 
and it's not through your obedience to the law as a saved person that you can be sanctified apart from the Spirit. So he just said, sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. What shall we say then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. Um, In chapter 8, he says, uh, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, Weak as it was through the flesh, through the sinful nature, God did. The law couldn't save you. It was unable to give you a righteousness that is demanded of God for you to have a relationship with him. Why? Because we've all sinned and we've fallen short of that righteousness. So for what the law couldn't do, weak as it was through the sinful nature, through the flesh, God did. How so? Well, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh— As an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Why did he do all this? So that now that I'm saved by grace, I can live however I want? No, Romans 8, 4 says, in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So, you know, just because I'm under grace doesn't mean that I'm not accountable to the Ten Commandments or any other dimension of the moral law of God. I'm still called to obey God's law, but the law could never save me. It could never justify me. It could never make me right before God because by nature, I'm a failure in the flesh. But when I'm born again, God forgives me on the basis of Christ's substitutionary work, but he doesn't leave me as an orphan. He sends the Holy Spirit to indwell me, to empower me so that I can fulfill the moral requirements of the law in my daily life. So anyway, I hope that helps. I I, I, I don't know what pastor it is. I, I think I know the guy you're referring to. Um, and it's, if it's the same guy, he's pretty shaky, but um, I, I don't know for sure. So I don't want to comment in that respect. And I don't know what the context of his statements were. I know I've often been misunderstood. But then bringing it down to your question in terms of the judgment seat of Christ, When we are saved, there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. All of my sin has been paid for through a substitute. And so on the one hand, the Bible says, he who believes in him, John 5, is not judged. He who does not believe is judged already. So there's one sense in which I have, uh, as the Bible teaches also in the gospel, John, passed out of judgment into life. So if I have received Jesus Christ as my personal Savior, then he has, in his substitutionary death and resurrection, completely and totally paid my sin debt. So there's not a judgment for sin, but there is a judgment for service. And that's really what's in view when Paul says in Romans 14 and verse 12, we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Um, second Corinthians five, uh, we're told the same thing in verse nine, and it's going to be a time of evaluation and accountability. Obviously, when you're out of fellowship with God, you're not spirit filled and anything that you do is nothing but wood, hay and stubble at the judgment seat of Christ. But there's coming a day when God will test the work that we do and not just what we do, but the quality of what we've done whether we've done it in our own flesh or energy or whether we've done it in the spirit. And he'll look at 1 Corinthians 4, 5 as the motive of what we've done. 
And it's all going to be tested at the judgment seat of Christ, not as a place of punishment, but as a place of reward. But it's a sobering, sobering judgment. This caller might want to listen to the Back to Basics series, and there's a lesson in the Back to Basics series called Developing an Eternal Perspective. And I walk through all these passages and by which God will judge the Christian, what are the uh, requirements that he will use, uh, the criteria for evaluation, what are its implications, and so forth. I think that would be a really helpful. It's an hour-long message, but I think it would give you a lot more depth and meat to the question you're asking me this morning. Very good. 525-1859, toll-free, 877-WAGP980, or email us at tbl at net. as has this listener who writes, I know a woman who is married. Her husband has been unfaithful for years. She has tried for years to restore and repair the marriage, doing all she possibly can do. She has been forgiving, supportive, very prayerful. She has really been a godly wife to him, but the adultery continues. In this type of situation, if they divorce, can she ever scripturally get remarried? Well, Paul recognized that sometimes there would be cases where Maybe you have a husband who beats you up. And, and I know a lot of people to me today say, well, my husband's abusive. Well, how is he abusive? Well, he's mean. Well, that's abusive, but I don't think that's the kind of abuse that you need to necessarily bail out of the marriage on. Um, and so this whole umbrella of abusiveness covers just about everything in people's minds. Say, well, how is your husband abusive? Well, he doesn't talk to me much. He doesn't listen to me. Well, I suppose that is a form of abuse. I don't think that's necessarily a grounds for divorce. But there are times sometimes when due to repeated adultery or maybe a man literally physically beats his wife or um, he's a, a drunkard and he's drinking away the paycheck every week. And uh, there are times when Paul gives some counsel as to what we should do in those kind, that kind of setting. And the counsel's found in 1 Corinthians 7. So let me just read it. He's dealing with the subject of singleness and then mixed marriages and whether or not uh, you should get married and all kinds of different things. And he says in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 10, to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. Now, that statement that he makes there is very interesting. He says, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord. He's going to reverse the phrase in just a moment. In verse 12, he's going to say to the rest, I say, not the Lord. So on the one hand, he says, uh, not I, but the Lord. On the other hand, he says, I, but not the Lord. Well, what's he speaking of? Well, in the first scenario that we're going to look at here, which applies directly to your question, he's going to say, this is what I say, but I'm actually just uh, echoing what the Lord Jesus taught during his public ministry. And then when he comes to the second scenario where he says to the rest, I say not the Lord, this is not something that Jesus said when he was here on earth, but I'm going to tell you as his representative, as his apostle, what you should do and how you should understand it, all right? So first he says, to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, let her remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And if the shoe's on the other foot, the husband should not send his wife away. 
So he's saying, look, I recognize there are times when maybe a husband is a habitual adulterer and a woman obviously wouldn't want to get in bed with that kind of man. No telling what he'd do to your body. You know, there are some 30 sexually transmitted diseases in this country for which there is absolutely no cure. Yes, a lot of them they can medicate with antibiotics, but there's a number that they cannot medicate on. Listen, I deal with people like that. I've dealt with Marines over the years. They're overseas. They're, they're on some deployment. They have a one-night stand, and they bring back some sexually transmitted disease into their, into their home, and it's so destructive. To the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she lives as an unmarried woman. I don't think he says divorce her. Let her remain unmarried because there's an assumption here that she's still married or else be reconciled to her husband. But I think the thought here is she's living as an unmarried woman. So there are situations where, you know, you're being beaten up by your husband. Look, your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit. You need to protect yourself and your children, and you need to get out of that kind of environment. But what are your options if you get out? Well, he tells you. You remain unmarried, or you're reconciled to your husband. You say, where did Jesus say that? He said it in his teachings on divorce and remarriage in Matthew 5, Matthew 19, Mark 10, and Luke 16, 18. He says, if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. If a man marries someone who's divorced from her husband, he, he commits adultery. Only death, as we just read a few moments ago in Romans 7, 3, and 4, in an unrelated question, can suffer the marriage relationship. Uh, that's very, very difficult teaching. And it's uh, very different from the way most Christians think in our day and the kind of advice that other Christians spill out on them. And people say, because they live by experience, but, you know, I know so-and-so, and he was married, and he got divorced, and the second time around, he's really, they got a great marriage and family now, and I just think I would be better doing that. And they live and build their theology by experience. Yeah, God is gracious, and God can forgive. God can forgive a woman who has an abortion, but that doesn't mean if, she's discover, if she discovers she's pregnant and doesn't want to be, that she goes out and says, well, I'm going to get an abortion. I'll just confess it and God will forgive me. It doesn't change the standard that God set. And just because God has forgiven people and his mercy given them a fresh start doesn't mean that we are to rationalize the moral dictates or to give other people advice uh, that's contrary to what Jesus revealed. So to the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife shouldn't leave her husband. But if she does leave, here's your options. Remain unmarried, live like an unmarried, like a single woman, or fix it. Be reconciled to your husband. Uh, But don't divorce him and then go out, start dating, and no, live like a single person. Or be reconciled to your husband. There, there are some women I know over the years who've been in extremely difficult situations where they have... Uh, gotten a legal separation without getting a divorce just to protect their finances uh, and to be able to provide for their children. They live like single mothers, and God bless them. The Lord honors them in that incredibly challenging commitment. A marriage is supposed to be permanent. It's supposed to be for keeps, and uh, we've lost that perspective in our day. Let's go to the next question. We've got a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Pastor Berge. Um, my son is uh, not 
as grounded in in the word as as I would like, and he's kind of taken by this teaching and that teaching. And um, we had a very long conversation last night in which he said he does not go to church because he does not believe that there are any churches that are operating under the apostolic ministry, uh, the fivefold um, ministry. And um, I'm just wondering if there is some scripture that I can point him to that can that can try and turn him away from that. There are lots and lots of other things that he said last night, and I had an answer for most of them based on scripture, but this is one that, that has kind of stumped me because he, he's almost unshakable when it comes to this particular belief that he has. Well, I would direct you first again to our Back to Basics series, and one of the messages in that by the way, we teach the Back to Basics series on Sunday morning. We call it the Discovery Class because we realize that these foundational rock-bottom truths are so critical for spiritual maturity. But in that series, I have one message entitled The Christian in the Local Assembly. And so remember, the will of God is found in the Word of God. And the Word of God never contradicts the will of God. It tells us what the will of God is. And so if someone comes up with an idea... Like, oh, there are no good churches uh, in the world, so I can't go to any of them. Then he's come up with an idea that's contrary to what God has revealed in Scripture. Because there are hundreds of admonitions and commands that God gives in the New Testament epistles that are to be fulfilled in the context of a local assembly. How can your son, for instance, fulfill First Peter 4, 9, and 10, where it says, as a good steward of the manifold grace of God, use your spiritual gift in serving each other. He can. Uh, How can he fulfill the admonition of Ephesians 4, where it tells him that he is to be under pastor teachers and those leadership gifts, because those leadership gifts are involved in equipping us to do the work of the ministry. But then it goes on in that text, and it speaks of that which every individual part supplies, that while there are leadership gifts in the church, even those leadership gifts are dependent on all the other people in the local assembly in the role that they play for their leadership gift to function. I can't function as a pastor teacher on a Sunday morning unless there are dozens of other gifts that are operating and functioning. I mean, I can, but not nearly as effectively. Uh, So when there are servant gifts and mercy gifts and encouragement gifts, some some people would never make it even into the assembly on a Sunday morning uh, were it not for someone who's come alongside either on the campus or that week and given them that word of encouragement that they needed to be there. Uh, Neither can he fulfill a simple command like Hebrews uh, chapter 10, where God says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. What is the confession of our hope? What's the confession they made at baptism, that they believed in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is their only hope? And then he says, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and listen to this and apply this to your son in the age in which we live in. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. What day? The, the return of Christ. What is the church going to become like according 
to Scripture as we move into the last of the last days? Will it become more fervent, more faithful, more in fire for Christ? No, it won't. It will become more and more lukewarm and compromising. And even in a compromised age, if indeed we are in the last of the last days, it makes no difference. We're not to forsake our assembling together. So your son is in sheer disobedience. And I would just say to him, I'd say, listen, remember, everything you believe, everything you embrace is based on something. And if you embrace something that no one else has seen in 2,000 years, you probably have misunderstood the scriptures. You will not find a church leader in the course of 2,000 years that would say, oh, well, uh, since there's so many compromising churches, we're just going to dump and forsake the church, and we're not going to go at all. No, you, you can't carry out hundreds of commands that are given in the context of a local assembly. How can he obey the command in 1 Corinthians 16 on the first day of the week when we're to assemble and we, we lay aside a part of what God has increased in our life? He can't obey that, nor dozens and dozens of other commands. So, um, for perspective, I would bring him to that Back to Basics series. It's on CD or DVD and get him to listen to it because really he's in error. Um, and very often though, let me just say, and I don't know anything about your son, so I'm not trying to make any judgmental statement against him. He may just have a pure heart, but he's just grossly misinformed. But most of the time when I hear this kind of statement, oh, the church is hypocritical, hypocritical, or everybody's an apostate and this and that, it's an excuse for, um, some moral issue that's going on in the human heart. And they're looking for a reason Uh, in order to bail out, to disobey God. And so the problem is not with me. The problem is with them, that church, every pastor. They're all wrong. They're all apostate. When typically the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. Now, I promise you, I can almost guarantee that's going on with your son. But go ahead and walk through that. I think you might find a lot of help there. Great question. Let's go and see if we can get a couple more in before we're finished. All right, indeed. Uh, Our next caller would like you to... uh Uh, talk about the following. He has a friend who's interested in the Global School of Supernatural Ministry and was wondering if you've heard of it or know anything about it. Yeah, it's wacko. Stay away from it. Uh, That's all. um, What else can I say? It's just it's it's one of those wacko groups, you know, where um, the signs, wonders, and miracles can be done through every individual. And if they're not being done in your life, it's your lack of faith. And uh, people just lining their pockets with money uh, on the naivete of many of God's people, and many too who are lost, who are looking for hope. I mean, if you're sick and you've got cancer and they give you three months to live, uh, you're going to maybe look for an answer. And who doesn't want to be healed? And they, they pray off of the naivete of many people. Um, and so anyway, uh, just stay away from them. It's not good sound theology. And without me going into any more detail, let's go to the next question. All right. In first Kings 19 verses 15 through 17, God tells Elijah that he will anoint, uh, Hazael, Jehu and Elisha. I don't see how he anointed, anointed Hazael since he's already taken to heaven and gone when he becomes king. And what do you make of Elisha's lie in first Kings eight as to Hazael's report? Uh, well, let me uh, let me deal here with uh, one one question here at a time. First, uh, in First Kings nineteen, let me just read that portion of scripture. The Lord said to him, meaning Elijah, 
Go return on your way on the wilderness of Damascus. And when you have arrived, you shall anoint Hazael king over Aram. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of uh, Abemahola, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. Um, So that's exactly what happens. He initially anoints Elisha, who becomes prophet in his place. And as prophet in his place, Elisha represents Elijah, who represents the Lord God. And so it is true that technically, um, Elijah never anoints Hazael or Jehu, the son of Nimsi. In fact, I was just looking for when that happened. Um, it, it, it actually takes place in Second uh, Kings uh, chapter 8 and 9. In 2 Kings 8, uh, Elijah, um, Elisha, ends up anointing uh, Hazael king. Elijah doesn't do it, but the man who stands in Elijah's place, Elisha does it. In fact, uh, Jehu, who's then anointed as king over Israel, he's not even anointed by Elisha. He's anointed by one of his representatives who is unnamed, but who represents Elisha, and he anoints Jehu. So there's a there's a um, continuity that unfolds here that is very, very similar to what you see um, even the apostles, the apostles who speak on Christ's behalf. Even you and I as Christians, we are ambassadors for Jesus Christ, and so we represent him. And two, there's a solidarity of the race that the Hebrew mind tends to think with that we don't always think with. Uh, a text that comes to mind is in Hebrews 7, where it says, um, and so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. And so Levi, in one sense, the Bible teaches, uh, paid tithes through Abraham. How, how could he pay tithes through Abraham? He lives hundreds of years after Abraham because of the solidarity of the race. So God says, Elijah, I want you to anoint three people, Elisha, uh, Hazel, and Jehu. He only anoints in his lifetime before he's swept up into heaven by a chariot, Elisha, but Elisha takes his place and he anoints Hazel, and then he has one of his representatives in turn who represent who anoints Jehu. So there's this solidarity that takes place as one man represents another. Um, we're out of time today, but uh, we didn't get to all of your questions. But God willing, maybe we can finish some more next week. Great to be with you today for the Bible line. If you want to learn how to get off the spiritual roller coaster of life, that's the message at Community Bible Church tomorrow evening at 630. Hope you can join us for that. Have a great day. 